And Jill is off today. I'm Bruce Claggett, and it is time to talk about travel. And, you know, we're going to bring in Claire Newell, Travel Best Bets. But, Claire, first, you know, I've got to say, there are two different times I start to think about traveling. One is, of <laughs> course, when the weather is terrible in the winter, and yes. everybody does that. But also, I think about travel when the weather starts to get really nice because it just triggers something in me. So this is actually one of those times when I actually uh, start to look at where I can go and if I have time available for me. I don't know. Like, are you, Bruce, are you thinking in the, in the, when it gets warm, like now, are you thinking I want to enjoy our own province? Are you thinking, oh boy, this is a reminder. I better get my winter vacation on the books. Both. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) I love our own province. (laughs) I'm actually going up to Lytton because I like car drives. I'm going to be doing that in the next week. I explore our province. And then I also take a look at those uh, hotspot vacations for me, mostly when it comes to the winter time. But well, it's, uh, it's, you're not alone. And one of the reasons I think for me anyway, when it gets warm and it hits July, I always think, because I've been in the industry so long, okay, now it's getting pretty late to book the winter vacation, which I know some people think, oh, geez, I'm going to do that way closer to my, my winter break and to go away over Christmas or New Year's. For me, it triggers prices go up. So this is when yeah. I, I, I put those on the book. So for those listening, if you do have a long weekend that you want to take or you want to take advantage of those Christmas or uh, New Year's getaways because you've got kids in that you're you're pigeonholed to those getaways you should start looking now especially because we have so few options for those package vacations which are what we as Canadians love so much you know Transat's not here anymore Sun uh, Sunwing is combining with WestJet and then we have Air Canada vacations so not a lot of players in the game no, it's getting a little a little bit tight. But that being said, I see that there is some expansion in some areas, like Alaska Airlines, right? Yeah, this was really good news. It just came out that Alaska Airlines is going to operate winter seasonal service to Nassau in the Bahamas, which is always a really tough place to get to from Western Canada. Um, they're leaving from L.A., but also Seattle. So a lot of people may take advantage and fly the little hopper on Alaska Airlines to Seattle and then take the nonstop uh, down to Nassau. This, they're both beginning in December. And it's a fir- very uh, first for, for Alaska Airlines to be flying to the Bahamas. Um, they'll be flying from L.A. down to the Bahamas four times a week and Seattle-Nassau three times a week. Both are starting uh, December 15th, so right right in time for the holidays. And they're going to end that uh, both both of those around the second week of April, which is around the time where those winter sun getaways start to tail off anyway. Claire, is there ever uh, a preference when it comes to recommending going to Los Angeles or Seattle if you're going to do Vancouver, then hop uh, down to one of them and then over to some someplace like the Bahamas? Yeah, there's there's definitely some advantages. Um, the other option, and really the only other option that we have, is going through, say, Toronto or Montreal if they've got continued service down to Nassau. Sometimes WestJet will do it via Calgary down. So just trying to get the simplest route. So for some people who collect Alaska Airlines miles, I know that there's a lot of them, even though it's an American carrier that are from BC. This is just something that they they might find easier. I have often seen uh, the other place where this would be 
kind of worthwhile is to South America, is to go down to either Seattle or LA and continue on. Some people will go through Dallas if they're flying yeah. American Airlines down because there's just more service. So going to South America from from here in Vancouver, it's typically Vancouver, Toronto, and then continuing down to somewhere like Buenos Aires or Santiago, Chile. Claire, let's talk about heading over to Europe. If you want to take that uh, longer trip, or maybe mm-hmm. even New York, because JetBlue has launched uh, some new routes, right? Yeah, and I wanted to actually make note of this one as well, because they're not actually flying from Vancouver directly to Paris, but J- uh, JetBlue has service now um, from Vancouver to New York City, and they also have Vancouver to Boston. And JetBlue will now be offering a transatlantic flight between JFK and Paris. So I kind of thought, well, hey, if you wanted to stop in New York for a few days before continuing on to Europe, this might be an option. Um, this will start relatively soon. So it'll they'll start the Bo- but Boston Paris will be next year. It's the New York Paris <sighs> that will operate daily starting this year. But you know what? I I couldn't imagine a better trip than doing a few nights what a double header and then a yeah right and then a few nights in paris oh that would be (laughs) wouldn't that just be amazing that's kind of like your fashion route yeah it's totally the fashionista route and you can i mean it is still an expensive flight but to knock off both of those cities there are lots of options for non-stop flights to paris but i just thought this was kind of one worth mentioning since it's new for JetBlue. Now, an interesting uh, research report is out, uh, a MasterCard research report revealing two conflicting stats. This is of interest to travelers. What are we looking at here? So this was interesting. Um, When I took a little bit of a deeper dive, 76% of Canadians say that they're desperate for a break. I totally get that. I expected a number around there, maybe even higher. But again, this was not a surprise. 73% think it's too expensive to travel right now. And it sounds a bit discouraging, but I kind of underlined that, you know, take heart because it also showed that travel spending momentum continues to rise as consumers and business travelers alike expect to increase travel in 2023. And we're seeing that. Planes are full. Um, We saw this past weekend all the flight delays and cancellations over the Canada day-long weekend. Um, But this report was really interesting. Some of the the things that it also showed was that travelers are making up for lost time. 81% of those surveyed said that they're not taking travel for granted. I think post-pandemic, that is the general consensus. Every time I've been somewhere, I'm like, I'm so grateful to be on this trip. I'm so glad I could do it. The other thing is the rise in international travel for the reason of leisure, which is a combination of the blurring of lines of business and leisure travel. I just so learned about people- this term yesterday. Apparently, everybody oh. else knows about this, but I just yeah, learned yeah. it. Yeah, it's so popular. Um, So for those who are lucky enough to work for a business where they can take a business trip and then their employer doesn't mind if they stay a few extra days, they're, you know, taking advantage of that. Of course, it's typical that you would have to pay for your extra accommodation and your meals and beyond if you choose to stay longer, but your flight's usually covered by your employer. 
And so now that so many people can work remotely, that's kind of a huge advantage for a lot for a lot of people, especially millennials. Uh, they they love that. Um, the other thing that millennials are really loving is the they're embracing digital tools. Eighty three percent said no problem. They they would be all over using biometrics and other emerging tech technologies to streamline travel. I'm one of them. I'm no, nowhere near a millennial, but I'm telling you, I'm if it means checking into hotels faster and easier lineups at the airport, I'm all over it. Oh, yeah. It makes it so much easier. Once you learn the tool and if you can get back or past the actual fear of uh, not knowing how to use it, once you get past that, learn the tool, it makes life so much easier. Any digital travel tool that's uh, widely used, I highly recommend. Yeah, I'm absolutely with you. And can we quickly talk about this crazy car? Oh, absolutely. We've got, <laughs> we've got lots of time. We're, we're even going to keep you past the next commercial break. But let's talk about this one, the world's first flying car, right? So I don't know if George Jetson has approved this, but this is so cool because the FAA has approved um, the testing of the world's first flying car. And the cool part about this is that it parks and drives like a car, functions like a car, it looks like a car, and it now has permission to fly and do all of the testing. It's out there um, by a company, for those who want to Google it, called Aleph Aeronautics, and it's dubbed the Model A. And, you know, you see um, boats that can, they have tires that can go on land. So it's, I mean, it's not like a far stretch, but we just haven't seen this. It will have a vertical takeoff. And I think that's most people's conception of a flying car. Claire, Pretty I'm not crazy though. about this. I'm not crazy about You're it not. at all. And I'll tell you why. I drive a lot. I drive into work here. And uh, I'm afraid of other drivers driving on roads. And we've been doing that for over 100 years. I know. I know. I, I, I do agree with you on that. Well, it's it's not for everybody because it's expected to cost 300 grand U.S. when it hits the market. But... There are people doing pre-orders, so you can do a pre-order for 150 bucks or 1500 bucks for a priority spot. So you're first in line if you actually want this. So you can Google it; it's actually pretty cool. I sent you a picture of it. Did you see it? <laughs> no, I haven't. I will check out your picture, and okay. maybe I'll change my mind. But 300, 300 grand. Uh, well, that's that other other side of the tracks travel, I guess. Yes, <laughs> seriously. Oh, it's Bruce Claggett in for Jill, if not on vacation, dreaming about vacations. And we've got Claire Newell from Travel Best Bets. Claire, uh, one thing we may come across if we're going through some American airports is facial recognition and expansion, I guess, to a pilot program. Yeah, this is um, really quite good news because it'll mean that hopefully some of the security lineups in the U.S. will ease. Just like Canada, we've seen them get long, especially post-pandemic. So this was based on um, success of an early pilot program where there's 25 airports across the U.S., that have them and they had a 97 percent success rate i know if i was to take advantage you heard me earlier say i would i would be a huge fan of doing this i already had to scan my face and do fingerprints for my nexus so i'm not afraid of doing this um, and it will help speed things up but what they're going to be doing is dumping quite a lot of money into this program yeah. because they want to roll out 400 more airports in coming years they didn't say exactly when the goal is to have them all put into play but you can bet there'll be some pressure 
just to avoid, you know, those long lineups, the sooner the better, especially at the big airports. We already know that some of the, well, the 25 largest airports across the country have them. Yeah. Um, but I, I see some of the other ones that are kind of getting clogged up yeah, using this. Yeah, I was this. surprised when I saw that 400 figure. That's going to be almost any airport where you could take a notable flight out of. So that's going yeah. to be interesting. Uh, let's talk some deals because there are some, including Honolulu. Yeah. Okay. It's a really small window, though, Bruce, to Honolulu that I found this deal, but it is a real humdinger. It's November the 16th through until the 30th. So if you can go during that window, air in seven nights hotel, not just the flight, $6.99, the taxes of $4.51. Um, the next one I've got is, an, I thought, a fantastic nine-night Eastern Caribbean mm-hmm. cruise. The Eastern Caribbean is one of my favorite parts of the Caribbean, and it's leaving February 5th of next year. It's a perfect time. The weather's really usually not great around here. And it's round trip from Miami. That's important because there's a nonstop that leaves from Vancouver to Miami, so it makes it a lot easier. Just um, about five hours, 45 minutes, I'd say, or almost six hours, but nonstop. And it's a nine-night cruise. It comes with a 50 U.S. dollar onboard credit uh, per cabin. The price? Five. 89 the taxes of 277 that's a steal for a nine night and it visits miami nassau puerto plata and then three saints st thomas st kitt st martin that so it's really gorgeous an incredible deal yeah it really is that is one that i'm cutting and pasting and emailing off to my wife <laughs> yeah i'm not surprised it's been so so popular um and then do we have time for another one we've got time for two more okay so um i'm gonna going to put um, Los Cabos up there. Just put it out there to people who are thinking about getting away over the fall because November 21st through until December the 11th, expensive time because, again, there's not a lot of choice. But I found a deal that's airfare and seven nights in a four-and-a-half-star beachfront all-inclusive resort, 1249 the taxes of 431 That might sound high. Like, sometimes I have them like a, you know, the... A thousand dollar kind of mark, but I'm not seeing that for a four and a half star. Um, and Campbell, anywhere. if people haven't been there, is quite a bit different than the other uh, uh, destinations on the yeah. West Coast. It's more of a desert meets sea. It is desert meets sea, and it's got a ton. Like it's got all of the major big box, like the WalMarts and the Costcos, because it's just so easy for. Um, Californians to get to Cabo. So there's the real kind of American influence there. I mean, it's expensive to golf and things, but if you can get a package to an all-inclusive, it's a really fun place to go. I felt safe every time I've been. Um, one last Let's deal. Let's this one in. Yeah, this one. is, it's um, a long stay for any snowbirds that are looking to do something. By far the cheapest I'm seeing is, with the airfare is to the Costa del Sol region of Southern Spain. It's a beautiful spot. March the 6th. So we've got October dates, but the March just came out. March 6th, airfare, and almost three weeks, 20 nights accommodation. It's a suite with kitchenette, so you don't have to eat all of your meals out. It includes the airport transfers round trip, and it is 1729 the taxes of 830 And again, that's air and almost three weeks accommodation. Yeah, 20 nights. That's incredible. Um, what is food like if you end up in this area of Spain, like going out and getting your own and coming Amazing. back? So easy. It's a really popular tourist destination, gorgeous beach. And if you have not been to Spain, 
like the tapas is so incredible and the Spanish wine is so cheap and it's just and good. It's it's so good. It's that whole Mediterranean flair, lots of olives and cheese and great breads. It's I love the food in Spain. Claire, if we want to check out these, they're on the website, are they? They are travelbestbets.com. Thanks so much, Bruce. Thanks for sharing your Wednesday afternoon or part of it with us. I'm Bruce Claggett in for Jill. You know, when you talk about Vancouver's crown jewel, few would argue that that has to be Stanley Park. And especially at this time of year, it's a great place to go and visit, especially if you have people coming into town. It's got to be number one or two or three on a list of the places you can't ignore. But there is an issue, and it comes down to this. Stanley Park's trees are struggling because drought conditions combined with a looper moth outbreak have been causing a population decline of the trees. The dead trees are spurring calls for the park board to start preparing for the worst. Even more concerning, the Vancouver Park Board has not updated its forest fire mitigation plan for the park since the year 2009. By the way, back in the 2009 report, it predicted that the hemlock looper moth posed a substantial risk to the forest, a risk that has become a reality in the past three years. How bad is the situation and how desperate is it? How dangerous is it? Well, to answer some of these questions and more, we bring in Tom Digby, Vancouver Park Board Commissioner, Green Party Park Board Commissioner. Tom, thanks so much for joining us again. Hey, Bruce. Great to be here. Thanks. I don't know if I've overstated it or understated it, but when it comes to trees in Stanley Park, I don't think there's anything that could be a little bit more alarming than the loss of them. Yeah, 20% of the forest canopy is now dead standing trees in Stanley Park. Uh, these are the western hemlock that have been killed in the last uh, three seasons by the hemlock looper moth. And uh, anyone can see it. Uh, as you as you look at the park, you can see big uh, dead trees all through the park and stroke, streaks of brown uh, dying branches in amongst the healthy forest there. Now, what have Park Board Commissioners been doing for 14 years? That's been yeah. 14 years since there's been a report. That's right. Well, everybody knows and loves Stanley Park, but, uh, you know, the summer season, the summer drought season has got a lot worse in the last 14 years. Um, you know, back then, uh, we were rain city, weren't we? Um, but now summers are longer and drier, and they, and the dryness starts early. I mean, right, even today, the uh, the wet spots in the park are drying up. Uh, uh, people can see it as you walk through the park. So the conditions are a lot uh, more difficult now than they were even 14 years ago. You know, I've been around newsrooms long enough in this city to know that there are big concerns for firefighters whenever they hear even the slightest hint of a fire in Stanley Park. And you know what? They're spot on and they're right to be concerned. It has never happened that there has been a huge fire in Stanley Park. There's certainly been a lot of small ones. How big a concern is that for you, that we could actually see a wildfire in the park? Well, it is a concern. Uh, It's a huge concern for me. Um, Now, I don't know the level of risk. I mean, we see that the the fire rating is high. Uh, You know, the the markers on uh, on the red uh, part of the board that says there's a high fire risk. 
Um, and, you know, that's the natural condition in this circumstance of climate change these days. We're going to have that. My actual question is, have we mitigated, have we assessed the risk correctly and have we mitigated it to the greatest extent possible? So I, I don't know the level of, you know, whether we're in an emergency situation. I'm going to leave that to experts to decide. But I want to know that we are uh, we are assessing it correctly and mitigating where we can. Okay, Tom, let's say that we come out and do that report, take a good look into it, get the hard numbers, the facts and everything you need for support to say it is a problem. What would we be looking at in terms of mitigation of the fire risk, do you think? Yeah, so there's, uh, I mean, there's uh, all kinds of ways you can reduce the fuel load, the, the combustible fuel in the park. So, um, you know, we would be looking at strategies, you know, if there's any recommendations around reducing the fuel load, uh, cutting down some of those uh, dead standing trees. Uh, but we we can hardly afford to cut them all down. Um, and it, it's in some places, it's good to have standing dead trees. So, uh, you know, we'd want an assessment around that. Um, there's also the more tactical, uh, the, you know, fire suppression efforts. We, we, if, if we could assess how that's being done, I mean, our park rangers have very small hoses. <laughs> they can uh, they can start with that. Uh, if that's not working, they can call in Vancouver Fire and Rescue, um, and they can uh, come in for their assessment. Uh, but you know, if things are really getting out of control, Vancouver Fire is going to have to call in the province uh, wildfire to do, you know, uh, helicopter strikes. And um, I don't know how long that's all going to take. Over the course of a couple of hours, we could lose, you know, substantial hectares of Stanley Park. Uh, This is my concern. Well, when I start to think about what could happen, I'm reminded that just in the last couple of weeks, there was a wildfire just above uh, Horseshoe Bay with timber in there being about uh well kind of the same sort of timber that you have around uh around stanley park plus a few arbutus trees but uh you know it it does happen there are these urban interface fires that one fortunately had a very quick fire response but some planes coming in from as far away as kamloops to do it but it did uh, take an afternoon, and it was a nervous afternoon just above Horseshoe Bay. Shut down the Sea to Sky Highway for a little bit. So it is something to be concerned about, don't you think? That's exactly right. And so the causeway going through Stanley Park, imagine if there is a substantial fire in the park, I mean, that's just going to have to be shut down, right? No one's going to go through there um, if the fire is anywhere near the causeway. Um, so and, and calling in these airstrikes... That, that, that's a perfect example of the fire in Horseshoe Bay last week. Um, you know, this is a record fire season here in BC in terms of the number of hectares being burnt. Uh, we're, we're almost at the um, the overall all-time record. That's going to take, but certainly by the end of August, we will be past the um, overall record. And, uh, you know, Stanley Park is, is it's what you say, um, it's right where the um, uh, wildlife, uh, and the urban centers meet together. That's where most of the damage happens, this wilderness-urban um, interface. Um, we, No one in B.C., I mean, we're, we're just learning how to deal with that now. And a, uh, to be honest, a municipal fire department is not always the best position to handle a wildfire that's approaching um, through the wilderness-urban interface. Well, some of the municipal or city fire departments around the lower mainland do have wildfire response teams. But I know what you're saying. And here's my other concern, though. 
at some point, and I'm looking at the forecast thus far and some of the predictions for our summer, it's going to be hot and dry. We know that. Is there a point where we might have to say the risk is too high to continue regular activities in the park? We do that for other areas around the province when it gets too high. Do you think that that may be a reality for Stanley Park? Safety is always our first concern in the park. And uh, you're absolutely right that um, if the conditions get out of control, and I know the park board watches this closely and the province does as well. If if there is a an emergency type of situation, uh, we could get um, to that uh, where we do need to close parts of the park. Yeah. Recommendations, Tom, in the short term and long term from you going ahead to take care of this problem. Well, uh, for one thing, you know, I think we should canvas indigenous perspectives on wildfire risk in the park. Uh, you know, that would be, you know, that was certainly one thing that was not done in 2009, um, or at least not directly done. Um, and we could upgrade and just get a better understanding of the biology of the park because fire is a natural part of a forest ecosystem. And we have to understand uh, from all sources what's the best way, since we don't allow uh, you know, controlled burns in the park, um, what's the best way to reduce the fire load? So I, I think that's what we're looking for is how to reduce the combustible fire fuel in the park. Um, and we need suggestions like, should we be doing large-scale watering um, in the park with the hose systems? I mean, I've heard some people suggest that. I mean, as a Green Party member, that sounds uh, outrageous to me that we would try and resolve our climate crisis by by trying to pretend that it's not happening um so but there are a number of solutions and there's uh, experts out there who can give us the best advice that's what i'm calling for at the motion at next monday's meeting and you've also highlighted the issue thanks so much for spending time doing that tom thank you bruce Swift mashup courtesy of our technical producer, Tim French. And why are we talking about Taylor Swift or listening to Taylor Swift? Well, Swifties will know this already. They follow every such move. But Taylor Swift has dropped 14 new international dates on her Eras Tour. Ah, yes, these ones are going to be coming up in areas of Latin America. And this is in addition, of course, to new dates that had been previously announced for Japan, Australia and Europe. Of course, still missing Canada. Why? Well, let's find out. We'll bring in Eric Alper, music publicist and commentator. Eric, thanks for joining us this afternoon. No problem. Uh, for a lot of people in Vancouver, I think that's the closest as they're ever going to get to maybe hearing <laughs> Taylor Swift except on your radio for a very, very, very long time. I see what you did there. Very, very, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it's, I don't know, uh, not following her as, as closely as the diehard fans, but still being aware of just her prominence and her talent and her ability to reach out to audiences around the world. I have to wonder what's going on when it comes to Canada. Is there something behind this? Uh, what has she admitted and what's the truth, Eric? Yeah, I, I think that there's so many different reasons when artists decide 
on announcing a tour. Um, you know, these tours are so massive, bringing um, not just a couple of hundred, if not a couple of thousand people on their crew, everybody from the sound people to lighting to catering. Um, so it's no easy task to get a tour like this ready to go. And then you also have to be really concerned about travel. Is the countries that you're going to be coming to, are they cheap to get into? Are there visas that every single member of your crew has to pay in order to cross the border? Um, do people have a problem crossing the border? Um, you know, but I think that there's a couple of reasons. I think you know, one of the first reasons that Taylor Swift is skipping Canada is that our venues just simply aren't big enough. When you look at the American venues and stadiums, not only do they love their college football, but almost every single major city has a venue or a stadium or arena above 50,000 people. There's not a lot of venues in Canada. I can only really think of a couple, and one of them is here in Toronto at yep. the Rogers Centre that has you know 50,000. In America, there's literally hundreds of venues with that size. So when you're traveling with that many people and you want to make the most amount of money possible, you want to make sure that you can go play to as many people. And sometimes playing to 20,000 people isn't going to cut it anymore in this day and age. And there's a lot of space in this country when you go to travel between Toronto and Vancouver. So when you look at the gaps in between with no uh, stadium big enough, boy, maybe that is just a, a matter of geography. Yeah, you know, it's fun when you're four guys in a van first starting out in your little rock band and you're going from Vancouver um, or, or like, you know, Winnipeg to Saskatoon. It's fun, but it's not fun when every minute that you spend on the road, you're you're actually spending it on the people that, that come to you. Canada's a really expensive place to play. We're not a lot of people. The entire population of Canada fits into the tri-state area of New York, New Jersey, and Boston. And that's really easy to get to. Also, our dollar is awful compared to the U.S. So automatically, when somebody like Taylor Swift is playing to 50,000 people, she's losing almost 35 cents on every single dollar that she makes. And sometimes that's just the reason enough not to play. Doesn't make a lot of business sense. Now, what does uh, somebody like Taylor Swift, when you get to that level of stardom, uh, what sort of size of concert stadium or venue would she be looking at as a bare minimum? I would say at least 50,000. You know, it's nice to know that certain artists want to do two or three nights in a city. That's what Bruce Springsteen does or Billy Joel does or Beyonce. Um, but not a lot of people like do, doing that. They don't like to spend money on hotels and food for, for all those people on the road. Sometimes they just want to go play the show, get in the limo, and then get to the next town immediately. Um, but, you know, when you're when you have that big of a tour, and I know that some people may not realize this, but this tour is maybe the first tour to crack $1 billion in terms of gross revenue. That's just not in tickets. That's also in merchandise as well. On average, her fans are spending almost $1,300 a person on not just the tickets, but the, the hats and the T-shirts and, and the programs and everything like that. So there's a lot of money to be made. And when you're Taylor Swift and you're being pulled by 
every country, by every part of your record label and management, everybody wants a piece of you. Somebody is bound to lose out. And this is a world tour, so she has to go and make sure that she plays in the countries and cities that maybe she hasn't been in in a while. She was here five years ago, six years ago, so... I know that Swifties and fans want her every single time, but they might just be waiting until at least winter 2024. Eric, we have uh, in the building a producer who went from uh, here in Vancouver right down to Seattle to see Taylor Swift. And that is fairly common. I mean, I've known over my lifetime, uh, certainly the Stones have played in Canada many dates, but I've also had friends that have gone down in years past to see the Stones at places like the Tacoma Dome. And uh, and they will travel. Is that yeah. kind of the thinking with a Taylor Swift, too? If Canadians really want to see me, maybe they'll head south? The, there's two problems with that. The first one is that by the time that Canadians were kind of a little bit wise that she wasn't going to come here very quickly, almost every single ticket on her North American tour, at least on the American side, were sold out. So there wasn't even an opportunity to go and see Taylor in places that you didn't have to pay three, four, five thousand dollars for a ticket on the secondary market. The second thing is that a lot of these shows, not necessarily Taylor's, but a lot of these concerts by superstar artists are geo-blocking people who want to buy a ticket, meaning that if you're not from that city or if your credit card that you're using isn't linked up to the city that that performer is playing in, you're not allowed to get tickets. So they want to kind of um, make sure that the people in those cities and those towns get first dibs on tickets, not only as a way to say thank you to those cities, but it also cuts down on scalping. And that's what everybody seems to want, so that somebody halfway around the world doesn't sound buy up eight tickets in order to sell them on their own secondary market. Now, there is so much controversy when it comes to the sale of tickets and prices, secondary market, this and that. Where do we stand right now with big artists like Taylor Swift and their input into the pricing? They control 100% just like they did back in 1970 when Led Zeppelin fans were aghast that they rose their tickets to $3.45 a ticket. Um, The artists absolutely maintains control over every aspect of every dollar that comes in there. And they are absolutely doing business with Live Nation and AEG, the the two major concert events. And a lot of artists are kind of fearful for when Taylor Swift or Beyonce or Springsteen goes out on the road charging anywhere between four to $500 a ticket to start, because that's now the level. But if I'm an artist and I start to see scalpers and secondary market people selling tickets for $5,000, $10,000, you better believe that my next tour, I'm going to start charging that much money for the first couple of rows. It's just a free market system. You have to take what the market is bearing, and that's exactly what's happening with Taylor Swift's tour. Now, I remember back in the 80s when I was in high school, I did uh, see Bruce Springsteen at the Pacific Coliseum. That was uh, the venue at the time, uh, probably 15,000-ish for allowing people to come in and see it. You had to line up for tickets. But you know what, Eric? It was affordable. And even as a high school kid, I could actually go and see this without... um, you know, really begging mom and dad or breaking the bank when it came to my own finances. That's not the case anymore for a lot of younger fans. Yeah, it's not a lot the case anymore for a lot of older fans either. Um, you know, they're consistently being shut out of 
of affordable tickets, no matter what the artist says. Um, you know, even back in the 80s and 90s when tickets were $15, now those same artists would be charging anywhere between five and $600 a ticket, far above the rate of inflation. But that's what people are willing to pay. So it's kind of a catch-22 is if you lower your tickets and make it affordable for everybody, then that's when the scalpers start to come in or people... I mean, really, when you get down to it, people like the idea of having access to scalping tickets. I, I know that people don't like to admit that, but I think most people like the idea of having the ability that if in case if they can't go, they can resell them, maybe turn a little profit in here and there. And I know that I, I, yeah. I see it every day. It's not these big ticketing companies that are controlling that secondary market. It's your average everyday person that buys six tickets, sells two, and hopefully to pay for the other ones. But you're absolutely right. that The inflation rate is going up, 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 and ticket sales are probably going more than anything else. Artists don't like to leave, lose money. I mean, that's the one thing that they certainly don't want to do. And not a lot of artists have made money in the last three years thanks to COVID and not being able to make anything while they're on the road. And it is Bruce Claggett in for Jill Bennett this afternoon. We are, of course, talking about Taylor Swift and her announcing 14 new international dates for her Eras Tour. And once again, not one of those dates includes Canada. But let's get past that and talk about what is happening in this country. We've got Eric Alper, music publicist and commentator, continuing with us. Eric, if it isn't uh, Taylor Swift, who is it that's going to be the big concert date for this summer and beyond? Yeah, I think for Vancouver, you know, people can take a, easily a look at a, a handful of shows that are coming. Coldplay is coming to the BC place, and I know that even though that tickets might be a little bit hard to come by, um, they're pretty good when it comes to keeping their ticket prices low. I just saw Ed Sheeran a couple of weeks ago here in Toronto, and he's coming to the BC place on September the 2nd. Um, that's always going to be a great show. And if people are country music fans, you know, artists like um, like more. Morgan Wallen, who's got the number one album across North America for the last 16 weeks. Um, he's coming. The Nitty Gritty Dirt Band is coming. Nitty Gritty Dirt October Band. The, Boy, yeah, that's they're going coming back on October the 19th. Yeah, to the Center for the Performing Arts. Um, so, you know, uh, Nick Mason from Pink Floyd, he's coming yeah. next year in January. Snoop Dogg is coming in July the 7th. And, of course, the Vancouver Folk Festival is a great place to see not only the really big stars, but also, you know, people that are going to be looking to sell out stadiums and arenas a couple of years from now. You know, I guess it's almost like being a hockey fan. If you're not going to catch an NHL game, maybe you go and see something that is just down one league and uh, yeah. still see some some great performances. Same may be for real music fans, too. What do you think of that, Eric? Yeah, you know, look, all all music starts being local. You know, you can be collective soul and sell out a couple of nights at the Commodore Ballroom in in August, but they started off playing to three people and the bartender, you know. Um, even somebody um, that's coming, like even somebody like Kiss, you know, who's coming on November the 8th to the Rogers Arena for their last time, guaranteed. Um, when they first started, nobody wanted to see them in Los Angeles. Nobody had any clue who they were. Um, you know, and look, Drake started off playing in, in open mics here in Toronto, yeah. and he's actually going to be, you know, selling out of Rogers Arena. So, yeah, you know, there's something great about seeing a band going with absolutely no expectations whatsoever. Even if it's an open mic, you know, that there, these 
these musicians have been struggling both financially and mentally and physically during COVID, keeping us all keeping us all occupied and happy. If it wasn't for music during the last three years of the shutdown, it, I would have gone nuts. You I would speak have just the you know. Truth. And so, you know, maybe this is the time now where you actually get out and go to venues that maybe people haven't been to in a long time, just to, just to go out for a night. You put a big smile on my face because it is the music that gets me through some of the toughest times. And boy, I sure like it in the good times, too. Eric Helper, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. We'll talk soon.